The Film Comment Podcast from Sundance is sponsored by Autograph Collection Hotels. The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project supports independent film and celebrates the power of storytelling to inspire and connect people and places by leaving a lasting imprint. Autograph Collection Hotels, exactly like nothing else. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, we're at the Sundance Film Festival. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and I'm joined here... Hi, <laughs> I'm Amy Taubin, and I'm a contributing editor at Film Comment. Um, and I'm a Sundance veteran since 1989. Okay. So, I guess the first thing I'd say is how hugely different the festival is certainly from the old days, but even from three years ago. I mean, the real difference is the presence of very large numbers of people of color. You know, I was talking with Lisa Kennedy, who used to be the critic for the Denver Post and used to be my editor at the Village Voice, and she and I would come to Sundance together, and Lisa would be one of maybe six people of color at Sundance, and that went on for many, many years. There was always a contingent of Native Americans because Sundance has always supported uh, Native work, but really no African Americans to speak of, no Hispanic films, really, at, you could go for years and not see anything, or a token one. Um, so. This year, it's really different. I mean, there are yeah. large numbers of people of color here and films about and by people of color. Uh, and the other noticeable difference is that there are many, many films by and about women. And that number has been growing gradually. I mean, Sundance never was bad in terms of the numbers of women directors. But this year, it is... It's not the number of films, it is that it is the subject and topic of the year. So, for example, I was in a screening today, and there was a guy talking to his friend, and he was talking to his friend about going to see the tale, and trying to explain to his friend that he went to films for entertainment or to learn things. And he wondered, if he had learned, he thought he wasn't entertained, but he had learned something. And so his friend said, well, what did you learn? And he was unable to say this. But <laughs> the language that this is being discussed is already this cliche right. where men said, well, we are learning. And women say, we are finding our voices and these are our stories, which doesn't make the films necessarily very good. Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned the tale, so I, I, I know you had a certain reaction to that one in particular. Um. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I kind of make a vow when I go to Sundance or other festivals that I'm not going to r talk or write about films that I have serious problems with. I like to write about things that I like, 
but this film, I think, is so problematic and was so problematic for the audiences that were there um, that I think something needs to be said about it. Um, the tale is by Jennifer Fox, um, and the character in the film, if you know Jennifer Fox's work, you know that this is autobiographical, and by the end of the film, she uses her film full name, and she even shows photographs of herself as a little girl where she was not. The object desire that she portrays herself as being in the film. So that's the first problematic thing. The, th the thing about the tale is it's about a woman in her 50s who has had a substantial career um, as a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, and she uh, begins in some uh, third world country in a situation of danger. Um, she, her, her boyfriend is uh, a person of color, and their relationship is a little bit problematic. Um, and she has a mother, and her mother visits her, gives her a letter, or gives her a story that she had written when she was in junior high school. And she writes a story about um, uh, going to, in the summer, to a horse farm where she has a running coach and a horseback riding coach. And this is written as a story which she tells her uh, um, teacher is a fiction. And the film develops from there. And it is about how these two adults, who in the film are just beautifully seductive, especially the woman, um, uh, groom this little girl. Uh, and the man uh, has sex with her, has a long affair with her when she is 13 years old. The problem for me with this film is one, Jennifer Fox's first is cagey about whether it's her story and then it openly is her story. And the thing that she shows us that might be the learning experience for people for is that predators groom their objects of desire by telling them that they're special and there's no one else like them and they're going to be made more special. Um, and that happens in the film. Unfortunately, the film duplicates that without being at all conscious of it. Because in making this film, in making it only about her story, Jennifer Fox makes herself special again. She has a wounded narcissistic problem with her specialness, which is the great flaw in this film, even though it's supposedly what the film is about. And there's just a stunning lack of clarity. The other problem is that the scenes between this 13-year-old, uh, um, you know, really quite beautiful child and this guy are shot in a way that's extremely erotic. And the fact that they used an adult double doesn't matter a jot. What's on the screen is things that make you uncomfortable uh, because I am sure that everyone sitting around me was turned on, hmm. um, and I find that appalling. 
what did you think about the some of the formal things it was it's it's doing? I haven't I didn't see it to the end, uh, but uh, you know where people comment. I, I mean, you, you can describe it. Uh, where the well, the film moves back and forth in time. Yeah. I mean, from the adult Laura Dern plays her, and Laura Dern is terrific, and she carries the brunt of this. Right. Um, but she is really quite wonderful. Uh, so it moves back and forth from her adult life, her relationship with her mother, who is Ellen Burstyn, um, and a little bit with her partner, uh, and nothing about her work after that first scene. Um, and then it moves back in time to this horse farm and being 13. The only really interesting moment is when she once again reads this story, and clearly this is a, an experience in her life that she hasn't totally blotted out, but she's misremembered it in certain ways. So the first time we see that, she is portrayed as, she portrays herself, or the girl that we see is older. She could pass for 17. Right. And then she somehow remembers, oh, no, no, I was 13, right. you know. Uh, and that, that just bit of showing how, you know, memory deceives us and comes back in pieces, um, that's, that's a single moment, but that's probably the only yeah. single moment I liked in the film. No, it, I mean, that also seems something that's uh, almost uniquely cinematic or photographic that you, in its impact that you can just, you'll change the age of the person you're showing, then you immediately, yeah. you understand it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I just find this film really, really a big problem. And I am also very surprised that the majority of people who seem to think it's really wonderful are guys. I mean, this film really breaks down on gender lines. I do not know any women that don't have big problems with this film. That's interesting. Um, the particular screening I went to, I thought, just in the audience, it seems it was majority female in the audience, but I didn't. Um, I've, 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 I've definitely heard some a couple of female critics li- liking it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I still haven't seen it, so I don't have, can't have an opinion on it. Well, let's turn to something more positive <laughs> that, uh, that you liked. Um, I think you mentioned Lizzie. Yeah, I like Lizzie a lot. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about Lizzie, but it was just me kind of uh, rambling. <laughs> so why, why don't you tell us a bit about that? Well, Lizzie is the story about Lizzie Borden, who uh, gave her mother 40 wax and then gave her father 40 more. <laughs> and that does occur in the film. Yep. Um, but I am told, uh, I had totally forgotten the details of the Lizzie Borden story, and I'm told that this is probably a fiction. Uh-huh. Um, the yeah. angle on what happened. Hmm. The thing is that it is a perfectly plausible and hmm. compelling story about a woman of very, very high intelligence who is being... Um, virtually imprisoned uh, because she is the, in quote, spinster daughter mm-hmm. of one of the richest families in Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is hated by her father and her stepmother. And she has been institutionalized because she is, has epileptic seizures. And she is considered a 
uh, a kind of blight on the family, and she fiercely guards her what little independence she has. Um, And there is um, a new maid comes to the house. It's Christine Stewart plays her, and they have a sympathetic bond because the father is so horrible to them both, and he quickly is in unwanted, but in the Kristen Stewart character's bed. And he, the terrible thing that he does is that Lizzie keeps pigeons, and he slaughters them all for some imagined offense that she's committed. At that point, I would have killed him with 40 waxes well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No kidding around. Pretty brutal. Um, and the thing about the film is, obviously it's period. Period is hard to do. Uh, these two actresses are amazing. The, the shooting style, which is quite simple, is quite amazing. The pace of the film is, I was never out of it for a minute. I was never bored for a minute, but there isn't any busy work in the film. There isn't a lot of camera moves. There's nothing to speed things up. It's basically two women thinking and acting on camera. Mm. And the thing about the Lizzie Borden character is she is extremely intelligent. And she realizes that she's in a situation also, like the women of Jane Austen, that her father is going to disinherit her or put her estate that she had from her real mother um, in trust with her uncle, who is a predator, sexual predator, uh, a thief and a gambler. And she figures out how to evade that fate even before she kills him. I thought the film was so smart and I cared about these two women a lot it is not a popular film here at all. Yeah, that was a little puzzling to me. I, I, I can only attribute maybe to the, the pacing and maybe the kind of spareness that you're describing. But I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, they sh- it was a prominent slot. You know, I, I don't know. People were rushing to see the Van Sant movie or something instead. People told me they found the characters boring. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I think that might yeah say more about the people. <laughs> yeah, I think that I don't think it's easy to get people involved with women whose primary attributes is their intelligence on mm. the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Chloe Sevigny is amazing. She is, yeah. And Kristen Stewart is really fine. I actually had forgotten she was in it and for the first 10 minutes I didn't even recognize her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she definitely kind of disappears underneath the a little little cap and everything and the, and the dress she yeah she's as anonymous as as the maid is the, yeah. the one detail I, I like is that they just give her this name of, of molly or something yeah. <laughs> um that's not even her name yeah no i at close of any she delivers all those lines like just like these perfectly aimed arrows you know at the, at the end of these exchanges um I, it just it was just really breathtaking because it's that's just her power that she she has in those instances you know she can't overpower them physically or something, although eventually. <laughs> and the script is really good. Yeah. yeah, um, I, agree, yeah. I mean, it's not 
mannered. It doesn't worry very much about the fact that this is the 19th century. Right. <laughs> but it's absolutely believable that this is the 19th century. Yeah. I guess that's one with, with actually without a distributor right now, I think. Without a distributor. Yeah. And um, I hope it finds one. Yeah. They've done a very strange thing in the programs that we carry around. I noticed this that too. This is the Sundance Film Festival. They talk about this being about the filmmakers, about the storytellers. We carry around programs that have no names in them. Not the directors, not the writers, not the actors. And just a, the usual kind of writing that you get in festival bulletins right. of a two-line synopsis of the yeah. film. It's totally crazy. I've never seen that here before. No, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that annoys me every single time I open it. And I didn't know for sure this is my, only my second year, so I didn't know if you know that sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. But I couldn't believe it. Yeah, there's just no filmmakers. It's, and, it's like this overreaction to we don't want people to go to the movies because there are stars in them we want them to go because of right. the subject matter or something like right, that. Right, right. I also thought that somehow having the idea of the director before they're like introduced in the flesh is intimidating to people or something like it's too smart to mention the director because I've noticed also sometimes in uh, I don't know like TV s summaries or, or other places that the director name is being is dropping out sometimes so but yeah here it makes no, no sense. sense at all. Yeah. Very, very strange decision. The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project celebrates the synergy between independent film and Autograph Collection hotels. This dynamic cultural program is anchored by three key programs, screenwriters in residency, free indie films streamed at hotels throughout the U.S., and a portfolio of beautiful hotels in key film festival destinations. Learn more by visiting autographhotels.com. Autograph Hotels, exactly like nothing else. So what... Next, well, maybe a dock? Okay. There are a couple of, well, let's do something that's in between a dock and uh, a, uh -huh. a real film, which is uh, a real film, a narrative film, mm -hmm. which is Skate Kitchen. Skate Kitchen. Uh, yes. Crystal Mosel's film, and Crystal Mosel made uh, the film about the brothers who lived in near captivity. What is the name of that film? The Wolf Pack, I the think Wolf it was, Pack. yeah. Wolf Pack, uh, which you like. I like very yeah, much. Um, and it was really her first feature film, and that was a doc. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a kind of verite doc where she nearly lived with these kids and their mother and father, who, if anyone knows the wolf pack, the father has finally been forced out of that home. Oh. So it's the mother living with the oh, I did not know that. kids. Yeah. Huh. Um, I mean, I've seen that one or two of the kids works at Metrograph. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And one of them actually is a, an assistant camera person gets work. Oh, no kidding. So they were all film freaks in there yeah. and made, made movies in their captivity. So Skate Kitchen, Crystal Mosel met b the boys in the wolf pack just walking on the street in the East Village. And here she told me that she met these uh, skateboard teenage girls, I think they were around 14 and 15 when she first met them. She just heard them talking on the subway and she was really taken with them. Mm -hmm. And so she started a conversation. And at that point she had to make a little fashion piece for one of the big fashion houses. Mm -hmm. And she thought it would be interesting to 
do it with these skater girls, and that's how she started the relationship. Mm-hmm. And then they decided, she decided she wanted to collaborate with them and make a movie that wasn't strictly a doc, mm-hmm. so that this story of this film would be developed um, out of their experience. And so it took about a year of them, her hanging out with them and them telling her stories and her taking notes mm-hmm. and lots of cards on the wall. <laughs> and, um, and it became a narrative because at the center there are two really fictional characters. Mm. Uh, but one of them is was really one of these skaters. Mm. But the story is not necessarily her story. Okay. And so the story in the film is that there is a skater. She lives with her, a single mom. Uh, in the suburbs. She comes to New York, to Lower Manhattan, to skate. Uh, She gets into an accident. Her mother makes her promise not to do it, and so she leaves home. And she falls in with this, or gets taken in by this really group, tight group of girl skaters. And she uh, gets, uh, uh, she's offered a place in one of their houses and oh. or apartments, and so she's really yeah. part of that group. Part of the group. Uh, but she's a suburban girl, and these are real New York girls. And so she's really uh, naive in lots of ways, uh, sexually naive. And this film just has the best conversations among teenage girls that I have ever heard in my life. And they are so real and so amazing. And the thing about the girl skaters that's wonderful is they're all genders. I mean, uh, there are girls who are bi and girls who are queer and girls who are straight and girls who are uh, um, lesbian and you know girls who don't identify at all, like a beating character. They're all ethnicities and races. They and absolutely bonded group. At one point, when this falls apart for her, she goes to hang out with the rival skaters who are this boys group. And the guy skaters really have, it's not that they don't interact with the girls, they do, and they have sex with them, and they have relationships, but in terms of turf wars, turf wars go on on in the park every day. So she goes to stay with the boy skaters when she gets. And um, what's interesting, I mean, in part it's that Crystal did not have as complex a relationship with the boy skaters and didn't know as much. But the boy skaters just seem like they're uniform. They are various ethnicities, but they they just project uh, um, heterosexual masculinity as Uh a kind of bravado. Uh Um, And you're absolutely sure this isn't true, but it is so different, and the energy is so different. There's lots of skating in the city. It's a great New York movie. Uh Is that the skate park that's like by the two bridges in Lower East Side right there? Yeah, that, and there's one that's up kind of on the Manhattan side near the 59th Street Bridge. Oh, okay. And then... There's uh, one scene that takes place between 6th and 7th Avenue near the Museum of Modern Art. You oh. know where the Ziegfeld Theater used to have that 
Oh, yeah, there's that little yeah. open area. So there's a big scene out there. Oh, really? Okay. So it is, uh, and they do a lot on Canal Street. I've, yeah, I've been told it's a, it's a good New York movie in terms of the actual locations and things. All right, well, uh, we have do you a... you want to do one? Um, yeah, I mean, the next one we can, we can, we can dialogue, have a dialogue on, because I thought maybe another doc with other elements in it, uh, Bisbee 17, yeah. uh, would be a good one to start on. Um, I, maybe I can try summarizing. It's a little foggy for me because I saw it in a pre-screening, so... <laughs> Not so easy to summarize. Yeah. So, Bisbee 17 is, the content of it is a town in Arizona that is staging a reenactment of a atrocity, basically, that occurred there in 1917. A, one of many instances of just brutal and, and murderous strike-breaking, more or less, that, that occurred. Um, in this case, it was um, copper miners? Yeah, it, Bisbee is a town with big copper mining yeah. its sole economy. Yeah, copper. And this is a kind of famous event in American history. Yeah. Uh, the Wobblies and the IWW mm-hmm. trying to unionize the copper mines in Bisbee. You know, that that documentarian that I'm going to block on his name and the name of his film, um, he made the film last year. Do you, Dawson do you know City? No, do you no. know who fired the gun? Oh, do you know Travis Wilkerson? Yes, he made a film about this same oh, atrocity right. about the copper mines mm-hmm. in Bisbee that was here at Sundance mm-hmm. about 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, I haven't seen that one, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, this one, it basically runs through that history by showing people encountering that history and, and kind of internalizing it so that they can, they stage, they can stage it, and we see... You know, people in and out of of reenacted scenes, um, and um, it's a movie. I guess I, I I admire it, and I I I end up having mixed feelings about the experience because um, the director is Robert Green, and I guess it's part of a larger general project he's he's doing uh, in, in with documentary. In this case, I almost felt like the richer experience was the one that the people on screen were having. Um, by with with the encounter they were having with the history and living through the history, um, and at a certain point, I somehow felt not exactly alienated, but just very parallel to what was going on in screen in a way. And uh, yeah, I wasn't sure if I, I could engage with it. And this is really kind of um, my um, uh, what's the word? Uh, my bread and butter. <laughs> this kind of subject matter, like I'm this this whole history is is really interesting to me but for some reason this process of having these lived experiences and trying to inhabit these old roles and he he plays a lot with you know the the people who are playing these different characters um in 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 the the drama of this strike and and how they're reacting to it and you know for you know he has this kind of vain supposedly professional actor who plays one of the you know deputies or sheriffs or something there's kind of a fun tension there the level of the levels different levels at which people are actually into the history or not or uh, is, is kind of uh, interesting but i don't know if if that makes sense what, what i'm saying but it, well i mean for me i have never been a fan of robert green's project <laughs> and i especially dislike christine a movie which devolves into whether this 
quite bad actress can get up the Stanislavski internal to do what the, her character did, which is to kill herself on camera. And it devolves into this actress just can't do this. Um, you know? Yeah, I mean, Kate, Kate plays Christine. Kate plays Christine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not a fan of Kate either. Yeah, I wasn't a huge um, fan of that one either. But so, but this is very yeah. different for me mm -hmm. because it isn't so much about acting. Mm. Um, it really is about how the people in the town in 2017 mm. are going through exactly the two diametrically opposed positions of 1917. Uh, and right. the descendants of these people, there are the white people that believe, yes, it was terrible because this was a massacre. Uh, they picked up all the people who were not white, who were in the Union, who were striking, took them in Memories of Auschwitz in boxcars mm -hmm. to the desert of New Mexico mm -hmm. and left them there in the desert of New Mexico to die. Yeah. That's what happened. Yeah, and that's even something that the movie almost doesn't even give you the full force of the actual. There are descendants, and when the people argue, there are the still pillars of the community who say, yes, that was a terrible thing, but you know the copper, the owner of the copper mine, he gave so much to this town. This town could not exist without him. Look at this beautiful school building, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, all the copper mines have now left Bisbee, and Bisbee right. is a kind of ghost town. But there are still the people who defend the owners and say that the union was there to disrupt and to destroy the town. Right. And then, of course, there are the people on the other side. And wonderfully, there are the people who say, of course, because one of the characters is a young Mexican man about he's 17 years old he says i'm 17 and he is really a brilliant actor even though he's not acting in the film i mean yeah. he plays a character yeah, but he is himself in yeah. the film and it just has incredible screen presence and so when they say you know this would not happen in this way now we have laws we know that kid could be out of here and across the border shipped by ice tomorrow um, so that's what the film, why the film was interesting to me. It yeah. was my internal dialogue with the film, knowing that a century later we're in exactly the same place. Right. Nothing has changed. No. That yeah. That is that is really a powerful part. And he, that that same that young man also has a great response to someone at some point. I, I I'm going to get it wrong, but something about like owning the land and he's like well you guys took the land you know right. um it, it wasn't it wasn't yours in the first place uh yeah and he holds his ground in these it's amazing way uh, and the interesting thing about him is he starts off being totally apolitical right and he tells us that he has no interest in politics and, yeah you know. yeah yeah no and, and you i mean you know you think oh he's just this kid wants to do some acting or have some you mm -hmm. know but then he just mm -hmm. blossoms into something else yeah no that that is that is pretty impressive no, I mean, it's, it's a film I'll, I'll want to see again because it's almost like it's growing before you and then it's grown. So it's like I have to see it again knowing what's going to happen in a way. Uh, um, like I think I got, I got hung up on the development of it. I maybe want to just say a word 
um, because one thing that comes up in Bisbee a lot is the, is the tension between um, pe- tension of people encountering the past and, and you know, um, either just reinforcing it or, or finding humor in it because it's so different from us, how, you know, how crazy people lived. So I'm just going to say a couple of words about um, damsel, <laughs> just, <laughs> just along those lines. Um, I guess I was, you know, this is this uh, Zellner Brothers movie. Uh, I, you know, they're calling it a Western, but I mean, and it's about a young man played by Robert Pattinson who recruits this, this parson or priest, um, this lily liver parson on some mission that turns out to be hunting down his uh, estranged wife or, or, or girlfriend who is clearly does not want anything to do with him, played by Mia Wasikowska. And I guess the simplest thing I just want to say about this is this movie is a joke <laughs> in every sense of that. You know, it's basically just continuing like Zellner antics that they have in, in um, I don't know, a lot of their work, just like these kind of cartoonish gags and one-liners. And a lot of the, this movie is just jokes where people slip in and out of like archaic speech and normal speech or like modern speech and you know things you wouldn't expect someone of the 19th century to say you know and so a lot of the joke it's just this kind of one note joke of being in the 19th century which is not that funny especially if you're trying to get into any of the characters after a while it was it felt like a woody allen light like if you know you know people are often are so self-conscious about whether anyway a lot of this i should find funny but i just wasn't really laughing also I just Robert Pattinson for the first half of the movie. I thought I was just going to say a few words about this. I guess I had to get this off my chest. Um, but the, he's there for the first half of the movie, and he he let's just say he's no longer there for, uh, after half the movie. And it was so precise the half. I, I began to think, was there some some contract or something that he had to be in at least half the movie? Um, and then sheepishly on stage afterwards, he was. You know, someone asked him, what's the challenge for you in Mia Wasikowska as an actor? And he kind of shuffled a bit. And he's like, ah, you know, the, the tone was really hard to get. Um, and the script was really good. And then he kind of mumbled away to nothing else. So I, I don't know. That's not a movie I'm <laughs> very yeah, happy no, about. I, I left before the end. Yeah. Um, your, your life is 30 minutes richer now. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I thought that the setup at the beginning of the movie kind of said, well, this is... It is a cartoon. It's a yeah. Western tall tale. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not quite sure who's telling the tall tale. Right, yeah. But it is stupid and <laughs> vulgar yeah. and disgusting, really. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of really icky violence <laughs> for no reason. Right, And yeah. it's very, very long. Yeah, it's way too long. I don't know. I just thought it was juvenile, and that's not even a word I want to use yeah. or like to use, but that's basically what it is. Um Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Are there any other films that we want to touch we'll upon? Read Morano's film. Oh, read Morano's film. Yeah, that's yeah. another another film. Unfortunately, I missed. But uh, yeah, tell tell um, me about read Morano's film, which is called. I think, I think we're alone now. I think we're alone now. Yeah. Which is song title? Song title of I want to get this right. It's it's either Tiffany or what was the one last name Gibson. <laughs> oh. Uh, Debbie Gibson. It's either Debbie Gibson or Tiffany. Okay. Um, so the first thing that I will say is Reed Morano, who has made independent features, but you know now has a huge uh, reputation in the industry for uh, being the showrunner and director right. of Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also is 
a DP, and she's a really good DP. Mm-hmm. So she shot this film, and she directed this school film in anamorphic, um, and it is a great, great-looking film. Um, it has two wonderful performances, but in particular by Peter Dinklage mm-hmm. and Elle Fanning. Um, and it's a post-apocalypse story. Peter Dinklage uh, is in this town where everyone is dead except him. Uh, and he's, um, this is the East Coast, this is the Hudson River. Okay. Upstate. <laughs> um, and he is... Uh, an obsessive compulsive who was a librarian. And so he is, uh, and this takes a long time, alone 30 minutes, Peter Dinklage going house to house. You don't really quite understand what he's doing, but he takes, he sprays, cleans the house down of whatever noxious thing killed everyone Hmm. in the world. Um, (laughs) He, uh, wraps the bodies and throws them into a pit. Uh, he takes, he returns their library books so they, that they never returned <laughs> to his kind of headquarters, which is the library. He also has a house. Um, he gets things in order. He takes people's photographs uh, and files them. And he keeps himself together by fishing and eating in front of these beautiful lighted windows and drinking wine and eating his fish. (laughs) And his routine is disturbed when this young woman, Elle Fanning, she drives her house, he has no idea there's anyone else left, drives into town and crashes her car. Hmm. Um, And she's clearly running away from someone, but something, but you don't know what. And she goes along with this story that they are the only people left in the world, and he doesn't want anything to do with her. Hmm. And she really wants to have human contact. You know, she really is, uh, she really believes in it. Hmm. And the film is problematic to talk about because there's a big surprise about two-thirds of the way in. And um, let's just say that what possibly might have happened to the world (laughs) may be revealed, although I'm not quite sure, and it comes from the West Coast. Hmm. Um, So on the East Coast, there is paper and books and libraries, and on the West Coast, they've been fooling around with technology Uh and uh, making people into robots and doing all kinds of things that may or may not have led to the, what might be the end of the world. (laughs) Um, The movie is, I was never out of it for a second. Mm. I think some of the ideas aren't developed as well as they should be. I'm not a fan of post-apocalyptic movies. And in the end I said, well, Blade Runner was better uh, <laughs> Alpha Veal was better. There's a lot of Alpha Veal in this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, There's also that Twilight Zone episode that I guess is yes. The Last Man on Earth. Yeah. But if Reed Morano doesn't get a $250 million movie out of this, then the industry is really sick, and all this stuff about women is ridiculous because she is really brilliant 
as a director. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, I don't think anyone's going to go to this movie uh -huh. uh, because people who love well-made movies will find something amazing this. If you love Peter Dinklage, you will find something amazing in this movie. But fuck, it's so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> it is depressing even though they try to pull off an alpha feel ending. Uh-huh. Uh, but... I mean, it didn't get me there. <laughs> it didn't get you there. So it's realistic then, because the after apocalypse probably will be fairly depressing. depressing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we could end with the apocalypse, <laughs> I guess. Seems as appropriate. Is there anything thing. else? Um, let's there see. Are things. Uh, any other films that you thought were interesting or problematic or both? Well, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of buzz about Ophelia, right? Um, which is a film by a British female director um, with big stars, um, Clive Owen, Naomi Watts, and... The newly minted, or relatively newly minted, uh, Daisy Ridley. Yes. Yes. Uh, and they're all quite good. And what this is, is um, what if Ophelia really had another story, Ophelia in Hamlet? Mm -hmm. And so they don't do the Hamlet text but they do the entire play just with vernacular language and they turn around the power relationships. And so, you know, Ophelia is running around as a little girl who really wants to be a boy and she's running around the court uh, and the, she catches the eye of the queen and the queen makes her one of her handmaids and um, she catches the eye of Hamlet but Hamlet is totally wimpy here and <laughs> the king doesn't get killed till the middle of the play that's the only difference and Claudius who is uh, Clive Owens at his most rancid um, <laughs> and who is just a, a predator and Ophelia somehow fakes her madness to escape and goes on to bigger and better things while the Danes and the Norwegians slaughter themselves, each other. And so at the end of the play, everyone is dead and Ophelia is in the hills with the daughter that she's managed to have, uh -huh. get pregnant by Hamlet. Uh, and they're obviously going to start some wonderful Scandinavian matrix. <laughs> matrilineal <laughs> society. Uh, it's very labored, but it's a little, it's kind of fun on and off. Uh -huh. But, you know, just going through the whole play without any of the text right. is pretty labored. Yeah, yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, he, he has a way with words, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, wow, okay. So, so we should look forward to the Ophelia universe coming up soon, <laughs> the <laughs> franchise. Um, and I think there are probably still some more docs that we haven't talked about. Well, they're just very efficient docs. Efficient I docs, like efficient yeah. docs. Yes, absolutely. Um, like RBG, yes. uh, which for every fan of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she has many, including me. Yeah, me too. This is really a wonderful um, uh, biography. She's there a lot, and she's not only there a lot in contemporary interviews, but you get to hear all the opinions that she gave, or 
all the cases she made before the Supreme Court, before she was a justice, because she uh, uh, pleaded five, six cases before the court, and she won five of them. Hmm. You get to see a lot of stuff of her. I mean, (laughs) we were thinking about the audiences for this film. Obviously, the fans of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, lawyers and people involved in the legal system for sure. Jewish families, because she comes from, uh, she's like, I think second generation. Hmm. Um, And so there's a lot about her early life. Hmm. She was born in 35 to this family that was quite poor, but wanted her to be educated and also wanted her to be a lady. And one of the amazing things about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is she learned from her mother Hmm. that even if people are saying horrible things and things that are hateful and want to do hateful things, you do not attack them or raise your voice. Mm. You make coherent arguments. And that's amazing in the film to see that. Mm. Um, There's a lot that shows you just the difference between today and now. Um, Her confirmation hearing uh, in 1993, Uh, where she openly said that uh, she believed in rights of women to control their own bodies and uh, the right to abortion Mm -hmm. uh, with no uh, impediments. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were some of the Republican senators who are still around confirming her and saying, well, I disagree with her. Right. um, So the difference between then and now and it's also a portrait of her 50-year marriage. Oh, and right. this is an amazing yeah. marriage of these two people. Just really amazing. And a God, a work ethic that no one... I mean, <laughs> the idea that she was one of six women in Harvard Law School and she went there and she already had a kid, had oh, had yeah. a kid that she was... And she was, w- and her husband was also in Harvard Law School, and they were doing half time. <laughs> and then he got very sick; he had an early cancer. Uh, and so uh, she was taking care of them both. And she made law review in her second year. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just like <laughs> what? <laughs> that makes me want to give up. <laughs> yeah. So I love this movie. Yeah. And anyone who loves her will love her more, and other people will love her. Yeah. So that's very efficient. And yeah. then the. Um, the Price of Everything, Nathan Kahn's uh, documentary about art auctions, basically. Right, and he, uh, he did My Architect about, yes, his, his, about father his father before. Yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, for people who are actually involved in the art world, they're not going to learn anything new. Mm-hmm. People not involved in the art world are going to be kind of stunned mm-hmm. by how the money moves around and what is valued and just very blunt questions to it's largely Sotheby and the Sotheby people how do you know that a painting is worth 150 million dollars <laughs> I mean what makes it the really ridiculous things they say <laughs> and against that is Larry Poons Larry Poons who was uh, one of the very important uh, cusp of m- abstractionist into minimalist painters uh, in the 60s 
who kind of fell out of favor. Hmm. And no one was buying his work, and no one even knew that he was still alive and he was painting uh, up in a remote area. And he is the loveliest guy, and he really talks very well about hmm. art and why people make art and what art is. Hmm. And so, you know, he is like the side bar to this right. and very necessary to the film. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's it's very good. And is is it at all? I, I mean, I remember my architect having a few sort of flights of fancy that kind of would break things up. Him like roller skating through the through one of the. Is, it, is there anything? If there is, I don't recall <laughs> it. But <laughs> watching curious. Larry Poons walk on the streets of New York is kind of like a flight of <laughs> <Okay>. fancy. <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, any other uh, documentaries that we wanted to mention? I don't think so, because you've already done. Hale County. Hale County, we, we hashed it out a little yeah. already, yeah. I like it, mm-hmm. but I just don't know too many heavy-duty documentary cooks in here got involved with it. Interesting. I would have liked to see the film that he made. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was problematic a little bit because, you know, like they said to Vertov about Vertov, this is just camera tricks. Mm-hmm. Well, there are moments in this film that you think, well... What is this fast motion? Like, he does everything. Yeah. The <laughs> he does every c- possible kind of shooting. Out of focus, in focus. You think it's going to be Stan Brackage, then, y- <laughs> then it's absolutely, you know, <laughs> straight documentary recording. Right. I, it's I'm curious, what, what were the telltale signs for you of other, other, other fingers in the, in the pot? <laughs> I thought that there was stuff that self-consciously wanted to be art Mm -hmm. you know it's the problem of how do you make a documentary that's serious Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I thought those they they had someone with a really wonderful subjective vision Mm -hmm. uh, who was discovering this place he was from the outside Mm -hmm. he um, uh, didn't live in Alabama, and he came to teach photography and basketball. <laughs> and he saw this place differently, I'm sure, than yeah. the people who live there who just, you know, it's the place they live. You never see the place they live. Right. And so I think he really wanted to show that. But then it got it, it got arted up. Okay. <laughs> I that see. That's my problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll I'll look at it with uh, fresh fresh eyes next time. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's that's at least we didn't end with the apocalypse. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, that's that's the end of our our latest episode in this ongoing saga. Um, thank you, Amy. For, for thank you, sitting. Nick. <laughs> all right, and tune in next time. The film comment podcast from Sundance is sponsored by Autograph Collection Hotels. The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project supports independent film and celebrates the power of storytelling to inspire and connect people and places by leaving a lasting imprint. Autograph Collection Hotels, exactly like nothing else, 